If you're here as a guest, my name's Mark, and um, it's my privilege to bring the sermon. We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 this morning. If you're at home, we had this prayer time earlier, and obviously couldn't pray for you directly while you're at home, but if you're at home and you need prayer, please reach out to someone in the church, reach out to the church office. We would love to find a way to, to pray for you. We're in week two of our Follow Me series. This is the um, series where we're just, just beginning going through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we had kind of an overview and an introduction to the book as a whole. This week, we get the introduction uh, uh, that, that Mark gives us in, in chapter 1. So we're in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13 this morning of the Gospel of Mark, and Larissa McCabe's going to read the Scripture for us. Thanks, Larissa. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Oh God, we live in a sea of distractions and we carry around in us a sea of distractions. And yet this is a holy moment. We, your people, have gathered before you and before your word. And we pray that you, the God for whom nothing is impossible, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold Christ and be thrilled and dazzled by him and follow him with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We have this book open called The Gospel of Mark. I want you to think with me for a moment about books. We read different kinds of books, right? We've got, like, here's my favorite comic book, Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes. We've got cookbooks. We've got textbooks. There's all kinds of books that we read, right? And it's important to know how to read different books differently, because if you read your textbook like a comic book, it's probably not going to go very well for you in school, right? And so, we know how to adapt to different kinds of books. What kind of book is the Gospel of Mark? How do you read the Gospel of Mark? Do you read it like a cookbook, like a comic book, like a textbook? How do you read the Gospel of 
Mark, the Gospel of Mark was written in the first century. How does the Gospel of Mark compare to other books that were being written in the first century? If, if, if a first century librarian got a copy or a scroll, probably, of the Gospel of Mark, where would that librarian file this Gospel in a first century library? What kind of book is this? You know, there were, in the first century, there were biographies and there were memoirs and there were acts of famous people. And the Gospel of Mark and these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some similarities between these books and other books that were in circulation at the time. But there are enough dissimilarities, disconnects, that I I think the Gospel of Mark doesn't really fit with any of those things. Because the Gospel of Mark is about, well, it's about a guy who lived in a very obscure area far from Rome. And those books were typically written about famous people who had large followings and lived in, in influential places. In fact, the main character in the Gospel of Mark, when he was alive, he wasn't famous at all. And worst of all, he died the most humiliating, shameful kind of death, a crucifixion. And worse than that, Mark devotes almost a third of his gospel to that part of it, very unlike other stories of the day. And, you know, often writers write to preserve the memory of someone, but this writer doesn't need to preserve the memory of Jesus because he's still alive. And so the gospel of Mark doesn't really fit in any genre then or Now, these four Gospels are unique writings in history and in all the earth. We'd need a new shelf in our library for these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because each one is uniquely focused on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as told by or, or interpreted through eyewitnesses. Each one of these books is remarkably focused on the last week of Jesus' life, as he fulfills his mission to die on a cross as a ransom for many. The intention of the Gospels, the intention of the Gospel of Mark, isn't just to give you theological information or historical information, but the intention is persuasive. Mark wants you to see Jesus and then repent and follow him. So the key question we're going to ask as we go through the Gospel of Mark is this. What do we learn about Jesus from this passage? I want to encourage you to write that down. I want to encourage you to remember that question. I want to encourage you to, as you talk about this study with others, here's the question we want to keep in front of us. What do we learn about Jesus from this passage? We've got to see Christ and then respond appropriately. So last week, we did an overview of the book. And verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I think that's sort of a title over the whole book. And we saw that, Last week, we, we, we saw in the, in the overview, what do we learn about Jesus from the whole gospel? Well, we learn that he's the son of God, come to, be a, to give his life as a ransom for many. He's calling disciples. And so the persuasive call then is to come and follow Jesus. Now, verse 1 sort of functions as a title introducing all that. Verses 2 through 13, what we're going to look at this morning is unique in the whole book. This is like an introduction. It's like a prologue for the rest of the book. What we learn here, Mark gives us to help make sense of what we're going to get in the rest of the book. The rest of the book, really, verse 15 of chapter 1, Jesus comes, begins speaking. And and from there forward, it's fast action focused on Jesus, what he's saying, what he's doing, 
and how people are responding to him. But this morning, Mark is sort of setting up the stage before Jesus comes onto it. So first we see in this setting before the drama, we see the messenger, and then we see the baptism, and then we see the temptation. Now, we're going to hold on to this question. What do we learn about Jesus from this passage? So to help us kind of keep that question alive, I'm going to walk through the text with three questions this morning. What has Jesus come to do? Who is he? And how will he live? What kind of life will he choose to live? So let's start with verses 2 through 8. What has Jesus come to do? Look with me, please, at, uh, again at verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, as I said before, Mark brings Jesus onto the stage. He's setting things up for us. And he begins with these words, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And I want to ask you, why would he start there? Why start with the citation from the prophet? If you want to understand Jesus, you'll need to know that he doesn't just drop in out of nowhere. He doesn't just make things up as he goes. Jesus comes. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news. But before this good news of Jesus on the scene, something else was going on. Jesus comes in fulfillment of God's promises in Scripture. Jesus comes to fulfill and complete what God's been doing in and through Israel. Jesus is introduced to us by a messenger and that messenger announces him as predicted in Scripture. If you trace these words back in verses 2 and 3, you'll find that there are actually two prophets being quoted here. Malachi in verse 2 and Isaiah in verse 3. Now Mark only mentions the most prominent of those two. That's Isaiah and that's fine. That's normal. But Malachi 1 and verse, uh, excuse me, Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So I want you to get this. Now, God is speaking, and he's saying that God is going to send a messenger before God himself comes on the scene. He will prepare the way before me. So God is saying he's going to come on the scene, but first a messenger. Isaiah is saying something similar. Isaiah is also referring to a messenger. That messenger is this voice calling people from the wilderness to make their way straight before God comes. Now, when Isaiah was speaking to Israel, when he was prophesying to Israel, he was prophesying to God's people when they were in exile. They were in Babylon. That Isaiah 40, verse 3 prophecy that's quoted here is, is God speaking through Isaiah to a people that are in exile in Babylon. And Babylon is over here, and Jerusalem, the city of David, their capital is over here. You know what's in between? Wilderness. And God is saying, I'm going to make a way for you to get back to your home. And that way needs to be made straight in the desert, in the wilderness, and that God himself is going to come and be a part of that. It's a sort of an exodus. It reminds us of the first exodus where Israel had just come out of Egypt over here and the promised land is up here. And what's in between? More wilderness. 
And so God brings them through the wilderness to get them to the promised land. And in doing that, he comes on the scene. He's there in the pillar and in the cloud. He's marching through the desert, making a way for them. Well, this Exodus theme is in play here after both of those things have happened. And Mark is signaling to his readers, to you and to me, that the good news of Jesus is that a new Exodus is beginning. That God is sending a messenger into the wilderness to prepare the way for God himself to come on the scene so that God's people can get to the promised land they need to get to. And who is this messenger? Verse 4, look there with me, please. John appeared. I love how Mark just says this so simply. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. John's out there and he's leading what we would call, I think, a revival. John is a man of the wilderness. He's a little weird, and you probably would have been uncomfortable to be around him. He's wearing this this jacket that's made out of hair, and he eats wild locusts and and wild honey for his diet. And he's not in Jerusalem. He's at the Jordan River, and he's preaching and calling people to repentance. They're confessing their sins publicly, and he's he's baptizing them. He's... He's making their path, he's calling them to make their paths straight. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now think about that for a moment. Don't you want straight paths? Don't we all want paths to be straight? Who will straighten things out? Who will set things right? Don't you want straight paths? I want straight paths. John is preaching, people, don't make your own paths. Don't go your own way. Those are dead-end ways. Make his paths straight. Go his way. And people are aware they've been going their own way. People are aware of their guilt. And so they are flocking 20 miles outside of Jerusalem to the Jordan River to be confessing their sins publicly, repenting of those sins, seeking forgiveness, and then being immersed in this river by this prophet guy, John. So that's all happening. And then the strangest thing happens. John says, in effect, I'm glad you're here but I can't do for you what you need. Everything that's going on here, it's great, it's fine, but it's not enough. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I. And that's the one he points them to. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will do something new. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying something new is needed. No, someone new is needed. Someone mightier than John. Someone who can do this new thing, baptizing with the Holy Spirit, because water can get to the skin, but the Holy Spirit can clean up the inside and make things new. See, these people are willing to go God's way, but get this. Until Christ comes... Until they come to Christ, forgiveness and a new ability to go God's way is still waiting for them. They need Christ. 
that's what John is telling them. They need the one who is coming after him. So what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? We learn that Jesus comes to do what God has long promised, to fulfill God's promises, to lead his people out of slavery to sin, out of that wilderness, and to bring them somehow into a new promised land. Now, let's skip ahead then to verse 9 and ask, well, who is this Jesus? What do we learn about him here? So look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So in verse 4, the messenger was revealed. John appeared. Now we see the message himself, the good news. Jesus is the good news. The message is revealed. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Let me just try to orient you. I I like maps. I I think sort of spatially. It helps me to be able to locate things. And I, I know you can't read all the fine print on this, but that's fine. Start at the top, the green arrow, that's Nazareth, okay? So that's, I don't know, 40, 50 miles uh, above Jerusalem. And the yellow arrow down there, that's around the area where, where John was baptized. And we don't know precisely, but that's where the, the Jordan River spills into the Dead Sea. So probably somewhere around there is where he was baptizing. That blue circle over there in the lower left, that's the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And again, I want you to notice John is not in the city where the temple is, where the priests are, where the sacrifices are. Why? Hold on to that question. And then that red arrow, somewhere up in there is the wilderness where Jesus had this 40 days of, of, of temptation with Satan. We don't know exactly where, but so, so the wilderness is identified both with that yellow arrow and with that, that red arrow. But I want you to see that Jesus comes down from Nazareth and much of the gospel of Mark will take place up around the Sea of Galilee in that, and in that uh, Capernaum, uh, uh, Galilee area. So that, that's where Jesus is coming from, which is kind of remarkable. It's kind of surprising. If you were going to set up someone to come and be the Messiah, if you were going to set up someone to, 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 to come and do the kinds of things that Jesus needs to do theologically, religi- religiously, spiritually, how would you set this person up? Think about maybe if you're a parent, you know, what do parents want for their kids? Most parents don't want their kids to be deprived. Parents want their kids to have all the advantages, right? The best schools, impressive extracurricular activities, nice cars, living in a good school system, all those kinds of things. Jesus shows up with none of that on his resume. He's not from Rome or Jerusalem. He's from Nazareth, a little village in Galilee that no one's ever heard of. He hasn't been trained by a famous rabbi. His dad isn't a general or a philosopher or a king. And the first thing Jesus does is to be baptized by John. When he came out, it says, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why? Does this mean he was a sinner too? Did he have sins to repent of? Why? If he's greater than John, why isn't he baptizing John? And and make no mistake, as we We'll see, even in this passage, many evidences of Jesus' divinity. Here we see Jesus fully human. 
What does he do? He goes under the water. He gets wet just like a normal human being. And here's the next surprise. As he comes out of the water, side note, this is an advertisement for baptism by immersion. As he comes out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit coming down. Isaiah 64, 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The verb here is schizo. The heavens are torn open. It's like taking a piece of paper and you tear it and it's split open. The heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And he does. God on the scene. Remember this moment when we get to the end of the story, when Jesus dies, and you know what happens to the curtain in the temple? It's schizo. It's torn open. Same verb. Here, this passage, the heavens are opened and the Spirit comes down. When Jesus dies, the curtain is torn so that people who follow Jesus can have full access to come to God's throne. Boldly we approach God's throne clothed in righteous, Christ's righteousness. But here in the baptism, the heavens are ripped open and God the Spirit descends on God the Son while God the Father declares, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is a remarkable verb, well pleased. It means to be delighted, to take joy, to be glad. God is saying, I delight in you. I take joy in you. I am glad in you. Here's a glimpse into God's joy of being God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this mutual delight that the Trinitarian God shares three persons in one God. You know, Jesus hasn't actually done anything in this story except to show up. And God the Father says, I'm delighted in you and forever satisfied with you. Two questions. First is this, do you find the same delight in Christ that the Father does? Do you find joy, satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ? We want to agree with God about his son. Second, if you're in Christ, if he's your Messiah, if you are one of his people, how does God feel about you? What does God say over you? Do you know if you're in Christ, he says the same thing about you that he says about his son. He says the same thing to you that he says to his son. You are beloved. He delights in you because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And what Christ is to the Father, you've become in his family as well. Oh, what we learn about Jesus in this passage. Third thing, how will Jesus live? How will Jesus live? By which I mean, what kind of life will Jesus choose to live? Verse 12, please. 
the Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Think about what just happened here. Jesus is baptized and this voice, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And immediately, Mark records, he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. He just got baptized. He's doing everything God wants him to do. And his reward? He gets led into the wilderness for 40 days of trial and testing. Shouldn't, is that, shouldn't a baptized person find things go well? Shouldn't someone in whom God delights be living an easy, trouble-free life? Shouldn't they be able to skate through and navigate through without all these difficulties? How does the wilderness express God's pleasure to his son? Because it does. Ponder that. Mark doesn't tell us how the wilderness expresses God's pleasure to his son, but he tells us that it does. Chew on that as we go through the gospel. And we heard, as Jesus will say in chapter 10, heard last week, Jesus comes not to be served, not to live an easy, comfortable life, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and to succeed where Israel failed. So 40 days in the wilderness reminds us that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness on their way out of slavery into the promised land, but they got stuck because of their unbelief. And that wilderness, the wilderness of our world, only exists because Adam and Eve, as we saw in our study of Genesis earlier this year, they wrecked paradise because of their unbelief and introduced wilderness into the world. And Israel needed another exodus from Babylon back to Jerusalem because of their unbelief. And it's a wearying cycle that continues over and over and over. But now, God himself has come on the scene. The Lord has come to decisively make a way for his people to be made new, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then delivered out of the wilderness of this world into the promised land of a new creation. But for that to happen, Jesus has to come into the wilderness. He has to be baptized in the wilderness. He has to battle Satan in the wilderness. Satan is, the word literally means adversary. Satan is God's enemy, the very first tempter who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and they fell for that temptation. Satan is the mastermind of evil and sin and death. And so the way to God's new paradise, hear this, the renovation that's needed in the world, the way that Jesus comes to chart isn't through Rome, it isn't through Jerusalem, it isn't with the kings or with the Caesars or the philosophers or the generals. It starts in the wilderness with one man doing mortal combat with the enemy seeking to defeat evil, darkness, sin, and death because that is the root of all our problems. How does he do? Does he win? Is he successful? Mark doesn't tell us. 
Why would he do that? We'll have to keep reading to understand what happened in the wilderness. But I'll give you a hint. If Jesus didn't succeed there, it'd be a really short story. And there's a lot more to tell. Because we're going to find Jesus to be faithful, to trust and obey, to live out the obedience of faith in the wilderness, in the towns, in the villages, in the city, and ultimately on the cross. How do you interpret the wilderness in your own life? Jesus was not in the wilderness because God was displeased with him. He was in the wilderness because God was pleased with him. And sometimes we can misinterpret the wilderness in our own lives and assume that it's an expression of God's displeasure. But it wasn't for Jesus, and it may not be for you either. And God may be up to something extraordinary that you have yet to grasp. But how, how I urge you, if you're in the wilderness today, trust, obey, hold fast to God, fight the good fight of faith. And the good news is you don't have to do that alone. Jesus is willing and able to battle the powers of evil and he is with you. By his spirit, he will see you through. What do we learn about Jesus? He's come to set things right, starting not with government, politics, economics, education, starting with evil. And I want to just circle back, holding on to that question, what do we learn about Jesus? And just one, one, one final reflection. I want to try to sort of draw something together from that first scene we saw this morning. Come back with me to that revival scene at the Jordan. People are flocking there. It's 20 miles from Jerusalem. That's not easy travel in the ancient world. There's no buses, cars. That's a very long walk. People are leaving Jerusalem. Why? Jerusalem is where the temple is. It's where sins get taken care of with the priests and the sacrifices. Why are they out here with John? Because they have uneasy consciences. They know something's not right. They're responding to a message of repentance, of confession of sin and forgiveness. And don't we know how that all feels? Don't you know that sense of guilt, that sense of something's not right, that sense of my conscience needs to be eased? I've been reading this story about a young guy named Horace. He, Horace wants to be a professional boxer, and he trains really hard, but he has this problem. He loves fried chicken and Coke, and he can't stop eating the fried chicken and Coke, and so he lives with this low-grade guilt. Then he wins a big fight, and his trainer takes him to a bar and gets him drunk and sets him up with a prostitute. And in the morning when he wakes up throwing up, he feels raging guilt for what he did the night before and that young girl that he was with. How can Horace be relieved of that guilt? How can we be relieved of our guilt? How often do we feel bad and then the response is, that's it, that's the last time. I'm going to try harder next time. I'm never going to do that again. Do you know John is in the wilderness and he's saying, what I can give you isn't enough. And just repenting of your sins isn't enough. And just confessing your sins isn't enough. You need one mightier than John. 
And you need one mightier than your conscience and mightier than your will. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Look to him. We need a new start, and the Holy Spirit will make that possible through Jesus. In Christ, you can be baptized with the Spirit, given new life, washed on the inside, and empowered to walk with him through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And when we stumble and when we fall, we can be forgiven because one mightier than John has come. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to fill you freshly with his spirit and empower you to keep going. So come to Christ, church. Come to Jesus. Bring him your guilt. Bring him your shame. If you've never come to him as redeemer and savior, won't you come to him today? Repent from trying to make your own straight paths Come and follow him on his path, on a new journey to a promised land of a new creation, delivered once and forever from the wilderness. What can wash away my sins? You know the answer. What is it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that is good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's take the Lord's Supper together.